This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a painful discovery to learn your family-owned slaves. Well, today and tomorrow, we're going to meet Coloradans, white people, who made that discovery and now have the desire and the means to make reparations. Our first guest, who lives in Denver, doesn't want to be named for reasons we'll let her explain. She inherited $200,000 and wanted to use it to make a difference. It was about that time she got an assignment in her grad program to write a critical family history. In doing this, I remembered that my dad had done an audio cassette tape of my grandmother in 1981. And my family was from Mississippi. And I'd always wondered if my family had owned enslaved people. And I was always told, no, no, we didn't, because we did not have a big plantation. They were merchants, small farmers, teachers. And when I listened to my grandmother's tape, all of a sudden I heard a different story. What was the story? She said, my grandmother had been given a little girl as her slave, and her name was Alice. What was it like hearing that on the tape? (laughs) <laughs> felt profound sadness. It w- became true what I had thought was true. And it may have been just one person. Perhaps there were other people. But to know that my family had benefited from the efforts of someone else. And all I really knew about her was her first name was Alice. She did all the cooking and the cleaning And she stayed with my grandmother after emancipation. We don't know why, but I can imagine that part of Mississippi was pretty wilderness still at the time. She was a single woman. We don't know that she ever married or didn't marry. So I'm not really sure what her options would have been. It sounds like Uh, you've spent a fair amount of time imagining her. Yes. And what her life might have been like. Yes. Do you have some sense that you may owe Uh, your own status in life today to the work of that slave generations ago. Absolutely. It can't be but that. When did the idea of reparations enter your mind? You know, I don't think I even named it as reparations. I just knew I'd had this money. I had been wanting to do something with it. I didn't know what to do with it. And when I found out about Alice, I wanted to do something to honor her. What she did is give her inheritance, again, $200,000, to a social justice nonprofit in Denver run by black women. It's called Soul to Soul Sisters, and Reverend Don Riley Duval is one of its co-founders. We asked her to join the conversation about reparations, but before she answered my questions, she offered a prayer. If I could just light a candle for Alice and invite Alice into this space. Thank Alice for her life and her love. You brought a candle with you. I did indeed. And her legacy and celebrate Alice and all powerful black girls and their black girl magic. Ashe, so be it. Amen and amen. As the candle burned in our studio, Reverend Don explained that when she learned of this sizable gift, she asked the donor, again who wishes to remain anonymous, to write in some depth about what was motivating her. 
at Soul to Soul, we were stunned, <laughs> to be quite honest. We were stunned and we wanted better understanding for ourselves about what in the heck were you thinking? <laughs> and, <laughs> um, you, you know, so we ourselves wanted deeper understanding and thought it would be a good exercise for you as well as family to think through the process. And what did you write out? Um, I wrote out what I've shared already, a little bit about the history. And then I talked about, I, I, I began to think, what do I call this? And you've used the word gift, and that didn't seem right to me because a gift is something that's yours that you give away. And I thought that's not the right word because this, in my mind, wasn't mine. It was something I had gotten through Alice or partially through Alice or... And so I tried to come, what are the words? And reparations came to mind. I've heard that. I'm not an expert on it. But reparations to me is big. It's societal changes. It's something we need to do as a country. So I thought it was more of personal reparations. And then I really said it's personal partial reparations because I don't know what the right number is. And I don't even know that money is all of it. I don't think it is, but I think it's the beginning. What do you do with this money? How do you do right by Alice? Yeah, so as we are learning about Alice, I am communicating with Alice. So, um, you know, Alice, what was your life like? Alice, when you were hurt or hungry, who did you go to? Alice, your name begins with A, just like my daughter, Amaya. Um, Alice, did you try to escape? So really went deep with Alice, and we brainstormed some of those questions. We talked about some of those questions together, and we were tearful. Um, and we also talked about what are some ways that Alice can continue to bless. So, you know, maybe we can do some small grants for organizations uh, that are Black women-led. And how the funding has helped us is we have been able to bring on new employees. We hired a reproductive justice program manager. We hired an executive assistant. We hired a contractor, a digital communications contractor. So we have brought on other Black women who are helping us to broaden the work of Soul to Soul Sisters. Whose fundamental goal is to fight racial injustice. Absolutely, absolutely. How uh, much have you talked about this with other members of your family? The, the Alice chapter, but also the reparations. You know, I've only talked about it with my immediate family, my husband and my daughter. Um, you know, like a lot of families now, politics are different in different parts of my family. And so it's one of the things I'm still thinking about. Are you afraid that they would protest? I don't think I'm afraid, per se. I just haven't felt... It's the right time and the right way to talk to people about it. Say just a bit more about why you wanted to remain anonymous. Um, I want to remain anonymous because I don't, and, and this is probably partly why I haven't talked to other members of my family about it. I don't want this to be, oh, look at great me. Look what I did. I had this money and I gave it away. I think we have centered white voices and white people. So for so long, it's time now that we center voices of people of color, particularly women of color. And so by 
saying my name and who I am, then it becomes about me and my family. And I want this to be about Alice and about Soul to Soul Sisters. What does this mean then for this donor's family, psychology, history? Is there absolution now? That is such a good question. I I think for me... I mean, I really view it as one step, and I view that my eyes are opened. Um, and I don't know what the next step is or the what else I will do, but I just do feel like my eyes are more open. Do you feel better? Do you feel as if a burden has been lifted? I didn't even know I had a burden. Um, I mean, I think that's a lot of what's in our country right now, is I think we all are bearing this burden And we often don't know that we are. And how closely it might be related to us. I think it's related to all of us. You know, I think as white people, regardless of where we grew up or where our families were from, we all benefited from the labor of enslaved people. Reverend, how would you answer this question? Um, Soul to Soul Sisters understands reparation to be about... Um, acknowledgement, apology, compensation, and conciliation. So as you just stated, white folks have benefited from the labor, from the blood, sweat, and tears of black folks, of brown folks, of indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. And there must be some public apology, absolutely personal and societal. I just want to say that, in fact, tomorrow we'll meet a Denver activist who wants to start a larger reparations movement. She, too, is white. I want to thank you both for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. So you heard there from a Denver woman who wants to remain anonymous about her decision to make reparations. She gave an inheritance, $200,000, to Soul to Soul Sisters, a social justice nonprofit that fights racial injustice. NASA astronaut Nick Haig was headed to space. This was back in October. Engines at maximum thrust, liftoff. And there is liftoff of the Soyuz MS-10 to the International Space Station, carrying Nick Haig and Alexei Ovchinin to the orbital complex. This again is Nick Haig's first time to uh, launch to space, and Alexei Ovchinin's second. Hearing good first stage performance for the Soyuz, delivering nine... 130,000 pounds of thrust from its four boosters and single engine. Everything is well on board. They're feeling well. Thank you. Copy. Everything proceeding as uh, intended for today's flight. Now just a little over a minute into it. View here of the crew inside the Soyuz now making their way to the International Space Station. Nick Haig there at the top of the screen and Alexei Ochinin at the bottom. Emergency booster, 2 minutes, 45 seconds. The uh, emergency, the failure of the booster. Two minutes into the launch, a booster malfunctioned, sending them back to Earth. Well, next month, Haig will try again to head to the International Space Station. He says his time at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, first as a graduate, then as a teacher, was instrumental in preparing him. Nick, thanks for being with us. Pleasure talking with you today. You were being blasted into space by a Soyuz rocket headed for the International Space Station. That launch was from Kazakhstan, as the next one will be. Describe what happened two minutes in. 
At the two-minute point, the first-stage boosters didn't propulse itself away, and because it didn't, it collided with the rest of the rocket, the main part of the rocket, and uh, essentially came apart underneath us. Um, you know, within a second, the rocket sensed that something was wrong, and it activated the emergency escape system for the crew. And then when we start plummeting back down toward the Earth, parachutes open, and then we land uh, out in the middle of the steps of Kazakhstan, a very flat place with pretty much nothing around, thankfully. And uh, the rescue forces were there to help us out of the capsule uh, within minutes. Are you confident this won't happen again? So Roscosmos performed an investigation to determine the cause, and they were able to find out uh, exactly which sensor was damaged that caused this to go wrong. And so I'm confident that they've found the root cause of this, and they know how to prevent that thing from happening. There's risk associated with every launch, so it really boils down to making sure that there's a safety net there that's in place. And, you know, the other part of that uh, equation is we do it because it's important. We've got a, a, a really serious science program going on the space station, trying to collect the data to expand humanity's understanding of itself and its environment. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because any number of people after the first sort of aborted launch would say, never again. And I, I'm so curious to know what, what is driving you. And it sounds like the scientific research is a huge part of that. You'll be in space for six months. I understand some 250 experiments will be conducted in that time. Tell me about one that really excites you. Yeah, surprisingly, about two-thirds of the experiments that I'm going to be involved with up there, I won't see until they ask me to do them. Uh, the ones that I have the most skin in the game, if you will, are the ones where I'm the guinea pig. I'm the human test subject where they're trying to research the effects of flying in space on the human body. And some of those are pretty fascinating, looking at how lung function changes at reduced pressures and being able to diagnose issues with respiratory function. That has benefit for us, whether uh, it's helping diagnose respiratory conditions on the ground or whether it's working on the moon and trying to assess whether we're uh, accumulating issues because of lunar dust contaminating our lungs. The idea, of course, for some is to return to the moon. I'm just going to note that you'll be up there on the 50th anniversary of the moonwalk. Uh, are you th thinking of anything special to market? You know, absolutely. We're, you know, we're not going to let that occasion go by without making a really big deal of it. For me, it's going to be, you know, I wasn't expecting to be up there for it. So right. this, is, this is one of the linings to getting a delay in my mission. I'm going to be up there floating around the Earth with five other uh, astronauts, cosmonauts, and looking back on what we've been able to accomplish in 50 years. You know, we, we go to the moon. Uh, we're able to collect some science. We're able to learn from that. Then we come back, and now we're on this cusp of going back to the moon and having this continuous presence or a long-term presence that's going to lead to us getting to Mars. So it's a really exciting time to be part of the team that's contemplating these things. I mean, it's also fascinating to contrast the relationships aboard the International Space Station, Russian and American, with the space race that pitted the Russians or the Soviets against the Americans at that earlier time. Um, things have evolved, I suppose, haven't they? Yeah, they have. They have. And, and I think that this, if you look at the history of the International Space Station, it is a shining example of what we can accomplish when we work together. 
and we've had somebody on orbit continuously. You know, it's been continuously occupied for 18 years. Um, I go out to high schools and I, and I talk to school children and their entire life, someone has been orbiting the Earth. And that's an amazing accomplishment. And we can only do that because we work together. I understand that you are able to bring about two shoeboxes worth of personal items with you. What will absolutely be among them? Yeah, so a lot of the things that I end up putting in there are things either I've asked people if they want me to to take some memento and I I take it with me so that I can say thank you to them because they've been such a significant part of my life. It, it, you know, it's kind of crazy. The shoebox of stuff that I had on the Soyuz with me was in the habitation module, and that was part of the fairing that was disposed of oh. uh, during our landing. And so it crashed several hundred kilometers away from us in in the middle of Kazakhstan. So everybody that gives me something also acknowledges there's a chance it may not come back to them. But for me, it's mementos that carry the significance of family. Uh, your wife, Katie, I think, and your your two young mm-hmm. sons. Did they ever convey to you how worried they were about you uh, with that first launch? Yes, and, and that's something that leading up to that launch, we had long conversations about. Every launch has risk, and, you know, if something does go not, you know, not as planned, you know, what's going to happen and, and having plans in place for different contingencies. But that's a lot of long conversations that we've had together uh, as a couple, as a family, to make sure that, you know, that we're processing all the emotions that are natural leading up to something like this. Because uh, I can tell you, strapping on top of the rocket the first time, uh, I was a blender of emotions. A blender <laughs> of emotions. emotions. Yeah, if you name the emotion, it was in the blender. It was all <laughs> mixed up. There was excitement. There was nerves. There, you know, I've been training so long, I don't want to make a mistake. It's almost overwhelming. But the thing that makes it work is you hop in the, the capsule and it feels like home because you've trained so long in it and you're shoulder to shoulder with crewmates that you've trained so long with and uh, it's just comforting. Then when you don't make it to space, it's like putting the blender on puree, I have to think. Um, <laughs> j- just before we go, you graduated from the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. You later taught there. Uh, just speak a bit to how those years inform what you do today? So I graduated in 1998. My wife and I were both in the same class, 1998. So we graduated the year that they launched the first module of the space station. It was immensely informative in in teaching me who I was and who I wanted to become. And, you know, I, I went there because I wanted to serve. You know, I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. And those four years taught me all about what that meant. While I was there, that's where the passion for space and engineering really took a, a foothold. You know, it was a childhood dream before, but we were building satellites that got launched into space. And when I go back to the academy and I talk to cadets, I tell them that what I did at the academy did not make me an astronaut. What I did at the academy gave me everything I needed to be successful in life, to be successful in the Air Force. And that put me on the path to being an astronaut. Uh, It's a special place, and I'm always going to find reasons to continue to connect back to it and give back some small piece of what it gave to me. Godspeed, Nick Haig. Thank you. I appreciate it.
NASA astronaut Nick Haig talked about his emergency landing in October and why he's going to space again in February. A really timely question came in through Colorado Wonders. It has to do with the stock show, which is underway, and Christmas lights. 90-year-old Kay Bell, who has lived in the same house in Westminster since 1958, had a realization. It just suddenly dawned on me that people who are kind of new in the area are taking all their Christmas lights down, and the people who have been here for a long time keep their lights up until after the stock show. So I wondered... When did someone decide that Christmas lights would stay up until after the stock show? CPR's Kelly Griffin, who's in charge of Colorado Wonders, has been looking for the answer. Kel, what have you learned? What I've learned is Denver and Christmas lights go way back. Bill Convery is a former state historian. The story goes that there was a 10-year-old boy, David Sturgeon, and his father, D.D. Sturgeon, was a Denver electrician. And as the story goes, the young son got sick and couldn't go downstairs to enjoy the Christmas celebration. So his father rigged up some light bulbs in a tree outside the house, and he painted the light bulbs red and green. And as tradition relates it, that was the first outdoor decorated Christmas light in the country. Soon the Sturgeon's neighbors began decorating their trees outdoors, and eventually the whole city took up the tradition. Convery also notes that the city of Denver had an electrician who started putting up lights on city buildings in in Civic Center Park back in 1919. And the city kept increasing funding, and by the early 1940s, he got to adorn City Hall. Where does the stock show come in, though? We weren't able to answer that part of Kay's question. There's no record of who had that bright idea. But I found an article in the Steamboat Pilot from 1955. It said the tradition had started 12 years before, so that makes it 1943. Okay. It noted the tradition was meant to draw these visitors who come from far and wide to the stock show into downtown to see the, quote, thrilling lights and probably to shop. CPR's Kelly Griffin edits Colorado Wonders. What do you wonder about? Let us know at CPR.org. Mountain climber Jean Montrath thought she might die on Mount Whitney, the highest peak in the lower 48. When she was in her 20s, she had a terrible fall, broke her back, and was soaked in blood. It forever altered her health and the direction of her life, including her marriage. But it did not scare her off. Montrath, today a ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park, later climbed the Himalayas. She's written a memoir, If I Live Until Morning. It was a finalist for the 2018 Best Book Award from American Book Fest. And Jean, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. In 1982, you cross-country skied the John Muir Trail in California uh, with your boyfriend at the time, Ken. Describe this fall. Well, it was at the end of our great ski trip. So we were climbing Mount Whitney, and a storm came in very rapidly. And the storm consisted of both heavy snowfall and lightning. And remember, we're on the highest peak in the lower 48 states. Not a lot of trees around to take. (laughs) No, not a good place to be. So uh, we decided we needed to escape quickly. We headed down the north face. We were not skiing at the time. We were hanging on our ice axes in what's called a hanging glissade. And Ken actually fell quite a bit, about 800 feet, and survived that quite miraculously. I continued down trying to help him because he was out of my sight. And when I got further down the mountain, I took a fall about 150 feet, maybe more, 
through some cliffs. And so I broke my pelvis and my back and got gangrene and lots of internal bleeding. And got gangrene. My, yes. My goodness. Yes. How did that come about? Um, because I got a wound on my left buttock and I was on the mountain. I was for five days before I got medical help. You know, there was a lot of internal bleeding and it just you know, kind of became dead tissue, basically. At one point, you think, this is a beautiful place to die. Yes. Mount Whitney. How does being that close to your own death change a person, change you? It changed me dramatically. Uh, I was laying on the mountain, bleeding in the tent um, for a couple of days in a storm. Was it painful? Were you in pain? Or? I was in pain. Uh-huh. Um, I certainly wasn't sure I was going to live. But it was the evening right after the accident. So within a few hours, it's dark now. I'm in the tent. And I'm about ready to go to sleep. And I was actually very lucid. And I had this sense of this entity kind of floating above me, like right above my face, like it wanted to kiss me almost. And it was dark and it had a sense of energy to it. And I knew it was death. And I also knew that I couldn't fight it. And it wasn't scary. It was actually quite peaceful. And so I made this vow to myself. If I live until morning, and hence the title of my book, I will leave my greatest dreams. And so that encounter with death has shaped my entire life. And I have pursued my dreams with more zeal than people pursue their careers, you know, climbing the ladder or whatever is important to them. It's really shaped my life. Does that actually make you grateful for the fall? Is it possible to be grateful for something that's so injured you profoundly? On some level, yes. Um, I believe that death was kind of a a gift giver in a way. Of course, I could have done without that experience, right? I mean, I've suffered, you know, 18 years of chronic pain as a result. But the truth is, it does give us gifts. And I think it's important to see the silver lining and be open to new directions that life can send us. We'll talk about how this changed the course of your life. But how did you get off the mountain in the first place? I mean, there you are profoundly injured. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if there was a helicopter sent to pick you up. Right. This is 1982. There's no no cell cell phones. phones. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We knew we were entirely on our own. So we tried to evacuate ourselves, you know, as soon as the storm subsided and we were able to do that. I think more importantly, I'll back up for a minute. While I was laying in the tent before we left the mountain, to survive those two days in the storm, I literally repeated this mantra over and over in my mind. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. It did not stop unless I was talking to Ken in the tent or I was sleeping. So that really set my mindset of great determination. And I really discovered the power of my mind right there. It was an important realization. And continuing on, I had this dream to see the Himalayas. And so as we did go out and we were sinking in thigh deep snow, I have 35 pounds on my broken back. It's very painful. Yeah, but let's be clear. So you go from lying in a tent, mm-hmm. being soaked in blood, with mm-hmm. inter- internal bleeding, profound bruising, broken bones, and you go upright yep. and have to leave the mountain. Yes. So we're talking about m- miles. Seven miles, um, 4,700 feet from the summit of Whitney down to the trailhead. Yeah, it, I know. It seems impossible. Uh, determination. I have a lot of it. And I really wanted to live. And the motivator for me was I wanted to see the Himalayas. So every time I would stumble and fall and collapse and think, okay, I, I can't go on, I would just remember that dream and I would force myself up and go again and again and again. Remind us how many days it took to get down? Um, from the summit all the way down to the trailhead was five days. Five days. Yeah. Two days in a storm. 
recovery, both physical and emotional, took decades, though. Mm, Yes. You even overcame an opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. That's something I think a lot of people have an experience with now. Right. Tell me about that. Well, it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, I, I'm not anyone who's ever even done recreational drugs. And so I think what I learned from that is to have a lot of compassion towards people that simply have surgery or circumstances and then they're put on painkillers and before you know it, they're addicted. I never got high off of it, but I needed it to survive every day just to get through the pain. And gradually, um, I became stronger when I found the right medical practitioners so that I could work through my pain. And then I stopped taking it and and it was really hard. I kind of cut cold turkey. Um, my doctor's method of kind of stepping down one opioid and then working with another one, it, it really didn't work. So I had a week of great turmoil where I was really, really ill. What was harder, getting off the mountain or the five days or, or oh, a week or so of withdrawal? That's a great question because they're like comparing apples and oranges. You uh-huh. know, Both were very, very difficult. I would have to say getting off the mountain was more difficult. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and author Jean Muntrath is my guest. Her book is If I Live Until Morning, a true story of adventure, tragedy, and transformation. So uh, Ken, who you later married, was Mm -hmm. on this trek with you. And it's fascinating. Afterwards, you rarely talk about the accident. He even asked you not to tell anyone about it. Correct. Do you think that he was ashamed? You know, I've done a lot of soul searching on what was going on. I... I'm, of course, speculating. I don't really know. But I think there was a sense of guilt because the trip was his idea. And so maybe he felt guilty about it. It's also possible he felt ashamed or embarrassed, you know, because he had a lot of experience as a mountaineer, and and I did too. And so I think when something does go wrong, you know, we don't always want to acknowledge that. Um, And I think that is a big part of why I didn't heal is that I couldn't continue on with processing all of that and talking about it. But that's so critical to healing is being able to speak about what happened. Yes. You divorced after 26 years, worked in similar circles, though, at national parks. Yes. I'll say that he died a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Did, Did you ever have any kind of reconciliation prior to his death? Well, you know, I certainly wanted to. Um, it was really difficult at times when we did cross paths at work, like in the hallway, and I would notice he would immediately see me and turn around and disappear or go into somebody else's office. There was definitely an avoiding going on, and so that always saddened me. But there Gosh, were times— you know, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but it really yeah. strikes me as another version of chronic pain. Yeah, that's well said. It really is. I think he was suffering inside. And I think he didn't have the best coping skills. So I think by maybe not having to interact with me or not having to talk about it, that was a way of avoiding what had happened. But I didn't want to give up on him. When I did see him in the hallway, like, you know, there was no way to escape kind of thing. Uh I always said hello to him. And actually, about three weeks before he died, I saw him again. And he did stop for the first time in a long, long time. And he turned to me and he did say hello after I greeted him. And while that wasn't a full reconciliation, uh, it, it did mean a lot to me. Okay, the Himalayas are, are in the background, yeah. literally and figuratively in this, <laughs> yes. in this book. What about the Himalayas enchanted you so and got you off Mount Whitney? Well, my desire to see the Himalayas 
boy, we could bring that in from a lot of different directions. I grew up in Colorado. So, I mean, I have been a lover of mountains forever. So I wanted, of course, to see the world's largest mountains. And that idea was planted from a professor in college. And uh, we were very good friends. So I wanted to see these mountains. And then when I actually saw them, I mean, it's really hard to comprehend if you haven't been there. Take the most rugged part of Colorado and double it in, in height and in mass. And there you have the, you know, the Himalayas. Yeah, it's so funny to think of a place <laughs> on Earth uh, where that make our mountains look piddly, you know? <laughs> it is so true. I mean, it's jaw-dropping, stunning scenery. And so, of course, first the mountains is why I went there, and they spoke to me. But I was drawn to something greater than that. And so I kept coming back, and ultimately I found that it was the culture that worked its magic on me. And what I noticed is, you know, there's a lot of human suffering over there. And I paid attention to that because I saw that these people, even though they were often suffering and they didn't have nearly the things we had, they had a way of dealing with adversity. They had a way of finding happiness with whatever their circumstances were. And that really inspired me. And then as the years went by and I was dealing with a lot of chronic pain, I wanted to know more about that. So I started diving into Eastern philosophy. Ultimately, that shaped my spiritual path. I became a meditator and a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. So the Himalayas have really shaped my life and they still continue to. Can you give us an example of like maybe the Buddhist approach to pain or perhaps to death? Uh, that opened your eyes? Uh, for one thing, in the Tibetan Buddhist practice, a common prayer and meditation every morning is just to reflect on life and impermanence and that death can come at any time. And I think that can help That one. sounds like a real bummer to start the day out that <laughs> <Sure>. way. <laughs> you know, some people think that way. Um, but the truth is we are all going to die at some point. And so I think another spin on that is one can live one's life richer by realizing how short life can be. And that's definitely the case for me. And what about pain? Because you, you had uh, dealt with chronic pain. And I wonder if there was like a metaphysical or a physical approach to pain. Yes. Um, I soon realized that I couldn't push pain away. And I think that's a strategy that we use a lot in the West is we don't want this pain. So we try and ignore it or push it away and not deal with it because it's, it is so difficult. But I took a different twist at some point and I decided to focus on the pain in the sense of meditating on it with curiosity and kind of exploring its nature. And that helped me a lot because I found that the more I dived into it, I became more curious about it and it was able to embrace it more fully. You became an observer of your pain. Yeah, Perhaps rather it. than married to it, if you will. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I am fascinated that decades later, you go back up Mount Whitney. Yeah. You wanted to find your skis, which, mm -hmm. which had been lost in the fall, right? Right. What was it like to revisit a place where you nearly died? You know what made me want to go back to Mount Whitney's? Because I didn't know that I'd ever really do that. When I left that mountain, I was leaving it all behind. But I actually saw a trauma therapist in Fort Collins, and he's actually the one that suggested I write the book. Um, he thought it would help me heal. And so as I'm writing this book, I'm spending a lot of time on Google Earth because that didn't exist before, right? And I'm trying to figure out where we were on the mountain, and I'm getting really curious now. Oh. And that gave birth to this idea of, well, maybe I should go back. And, of course, first there was the question of whether I could do it physically, because this is no just simple trail going into the mountains. Um, this is a very arduous route. So um, I trained a lot for that. And that, of course, helped me to get further past my pain and to get stronger. And then when we actually got 
to the trailhead and we're heading out, there was both this sense of fear and curiosity, you know, like, what am I going to find? I'm going to find anything. How am I going to react? Because I am going back to where I should have died. And when I actually got back to where Ken and I were in the tent and I could look up at the cliffs, it was just really emotional. And one of the uh, friends that was with us kind of pointed over, look, and 150 feet away was Ken's broken ski. And when I saw that, I I fell apart. I screamed. I bawled. I cried my eyes out. It was like, you know, this massive amount of grief and loss just came up and out of me. But that was really good. And then as I continued on the mountain, I did find the heel of my ski boot. The this heel is, of yeah, your ski boot. Remind us how many boot. years later this is. This is 31 years later. This is crazy. It's laying at 13,000 feet on the mountain. You know, it's been exposed to the elements. And when I picked that up and thought, oh, yeah, I did get my heel of my ski boot fixed after the ski trip. I realized another important thing about going back to the mountain. Even though I wanted to find my skis and I didn't find mine, but I found Ken's. I realized the most important thing, I hadn't forgiven myself for the poor choices I made. And that was really important for me to realize because if I could forgive myself and make peace with myself, I could make peace with a mountain. Uh, At risk of asking an overly morbid question, the direction of your life has been so determined by this one spot on a mountain. Mm -hmm. Is there any part of you that wants to be... I mean, not buried there, but like, if you were cremated, would you mm-hmm. want some of your ashes there? Or do you, do you feel like some permanent connection to that spot? I feel there's a permanent connection in the sense that my beloved skis are still somewhere up there. Okay, did, yeah, that's right? right. I love those skis. They've taken me some <laughs> Maybe that's enough adventures. of you. And maybe so. And of course, you know, I have the physical scars. Remember, I had gangrene. So I have part of my body actually removed as a result of that. So I guess Whitney's with me in that way. But um, I feel like I've really moved past that. And, mm. you know, I do want my uh, ashes um, to be scattered somewhere. It will be in the Himalayas, so. Okay. (laughs) Jean, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Jean Montrath is a park ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park. Her memoir is If I Live Until Morning, a true story of adventure, tragedy, and transformation. There really is a king behind the King Supers grocery store. Lloyd King founded the Colorado-based supermarket chain in 1947. But where did that goofy spelling, S-O-O-P-E-R-S, where did that come from? Journalist Matt Masick looked into this for Colorado Life magazine. Hi, Matt. Hi. And here's a hint as to the name. Everything's Archie. Archie's here. Betty's here. Archie, like the cartoons and comic books. That is right. Okay, what's the story here? When Lloyd King, the founder, was driving back from California with his two sons after he got discharged from the Navy in 1946, he was talking with them about starting a, a new supermarket. He, he had been in the grocery business before, but he had sold them off before he went uh, into the war. So he's talking to his two sons. The older one is Larry and the younger Lou. And he says, we need a catchy name. Uh, According to Lou, they were at a motel in Las Vegas, Nevada, when his older brother Larry said, I got the name for you. King, like your last name, Supers. And his father looked at him quizzically. Uh-huh. And he <laughs> kind of like I looked at it right now. Yes, yes. And what it is, apparently, 
Uh, Larry was an avid reader of Archie comics, which were at their height of popularity right around this time, right in the post-war era when the modern American teenager was invented. He was reading Archie comics, and he said in the Archie comics, when something really great happened, every once in a while, somebody would say, Super! S-O-O-P-E-R. And, uh, you know, it's a play off a supermarket, too. But that was his inspiration. Have you been able to find references to this spelling in Archie Comics? I have tried probably more than <laughs> more than seems reasonable. Uh, I have not yet been able to locate an exact Archie comic with S-O-O-P-E-R. Uh, I even corresponded with the world expert on Archie Comics at the University of Calgary. Huh. I haven't been able to track it down yet, but... Uh, that said, uh, Archie Comics has put out a lot of comics since the uh, 1940s. And so who knows what his son ran across in those comic books. Well, here's Larry in his own words. It was really kind of dopey, but, it's, but, the, but it stuck. It was dopey, but it stuck, and it caught on quickly, Matt. It did. Uh, they opened the first store in Arvada uh, at 57th and Webster in 1947. By 1951, he has four stores, four King Supers, and even back then, he, he announced a plan to open a hundred more. They eventually did, but it would take them uh, uh, until this century to do it. Okay. <laughs> but he, he was a visionary. How did Lloyd King get started in the grocery business? Because he, he used to own Save and Nichols, I think. Right. Well, he, he was uh, born in Nebraska. And when he was a kid, he, he worked in general stores. And then uh, he opened a feed store in Nebraska. Then he came up in the grocery business, worked in California, was a grocery store manager before in the 30s, uh, starting Save and Nickel in Denver. He started. OK, so Lloyd King used to say to his employees that the customer was their boss. That's right. What, what kind of a guy was he? Well, he, when you talk to uh, people who knew him, one of the, the most fascinating things is everyone still calls him Mr. King. Nobody, well, maybe his mother called him Lloyd, but uh, <laughs> uh, nobody else did. I talked to uh, Don Gallegos, who was one of his protégés uh, in King Supers, and he was friends with him for 30 years, always called him Mr. King. They, they said that he only stood about five foot five, but he had a, a larger-than-life presence. And, you know, everybody, all eyes went to him when he entered the room. And he was a, a, a powerful figure in Colorado. He has since passed away, we should say. Well, he died in, in 1998. Yeah. And there have been changes in ownership, certainly, of, of of King Supers. That's right. King actually sold the company in 1957, uh, and it's changed hands since then. In the 80s, it was, uh, Kroger acquired it. But he stayed involved. Uh, he was uh, running the show up until 1972. Oh, my goodness. What were some of the, I don't know, unusual things that Lloyd King did to keep his customers happy? Well, some of the things are still around. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't know if... if you know about the free cookie program they have, but if you're a kid, you know about it. Uh -huh. If you go into the King Supers, uh, there's a, a sign that says, hey, kids, uh, tell your parents you get a free cookie. And I, I grew up eating free cookies from uh, King Supers. And that was something that Lloyd introduced. Uh, you know, later on, Don Gallegos, who was in charge of uh, King Supers, later, uh, he said the accountant's wanted to show him the numbers on how much it was costing him to give away free cookies. He said, don't show it to me. That's what Mr. King wanted. Huh. Although it does occur to me that if you make a kid excited about going to the grocery store and they go with you, 
Then they point out all the stuff they want you to buy. I, I, I'm curious what it is for the balance sheet. Then there are these ponies that you could sort of ride for, you know, spare change. For a penny. For a penny. Uh, that was something that Lloyd King introduced very early on. And it, these one penny pony rides, these mechanical rides, and, and those are still at every King Supers. It's an anachronism. I mean, uh, nothing costs a penny anymore except for a pony ride, King uh, Supers. A, yes, an electronic pony ride. Yes. What were you able to glean about early grocery stores? Well, in the old days, you had to go to four or five different stores to get your meat and your produce and your dairy. Uh, they eventually all conglomerated right around the World War II area into the supermarket. And there are some things like every supermarket has a pharmacy now. Uh-huh. Uh, they didn't used to. The first person anywhere in the country, at least, was Lloyd King to put a pharmacy Inside a supermarket in oh. 1952. Which one? Do you know? Yeah. It was actually, the one I grew up going to is uh, at uh, 13th and Cromeria, the Mayfair Plaza. Oh, I, I actually go to that King's It's Supers. a good one. Yeah. Uh, so they rebuilt it, uh, but it was on that site. And, you know, pharmacies and supermarkets don't catch on elsewhere until the 60s. Uh, and Publix, the, the largest supermarket chain in the southeast, didn't have their first in-store pharmacy until 1986. So he was really ahead of the, the curve. I wonder if this has changed the way you perceive the grocery store chain, assuming this is where you shop. I have no idea. Oh, you know, I I grew up not even knowing uh, that there was a Mr. King, and it kind of blew my mind Uh when I found that out. (laughs) I remember moving to Colorado and just thinking – this was such an absurd name for a grocery store. I know. And that's what, what I really thought was neat because there are a lot of newcomers or even people who were born after Mr. King retired that really have no idea that there is an actual king. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Journalist Matt Masick wrote about the history of the King Supers name for Colorado Life magazine. Finally, this is the first day of our new schedule. We've added more than a dozen shows, including 1A, which airs in our old time slot weekday mornings at 10. Turns out that title, 1A, has a couple of meanings. It's a reference to the First Amendment, but it also refers to a newspaper's front page, often called 1A. The big blaring headlines are at the top, stories with more context at the bottom. 1A host Joshua Johnson says those contextual stories are the ones he likes to tell most. They say something about who we are as a country, how we view ourselves as a nation that is worth talking about. We're trying to kind of act as a mirror to reflect us back to ourselves so we can see ourselves more thoroughly and ask what we want to be. Here's an example from a recent show. Police shootings always raise questions. Why the shooting happened, whether it should have happened, and who should be held accountable. Back in November, a man tried to shove past a security guard at a bar in Chicago. That man had gotten into a fight, been thrown out of the bar, and came back with a gun. Now, the security guard, Jamel Robertson, grabbed him, put his knee in the guy's back, and detained him for the police. When officers arrived, they opened fire and killed the security guard. Roberson, who is black, was wearing a security vest, and witnesses say people in the crowd yelled to arriving police that Roberson was a guard. Still, one responding officer shot him, who later died at the hospital. Now, the NRA has made waves with the statement, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. But one out of four gun owners is African American. What happens when they're the good guys? 1A host Joshua Johnson. 
who adds that it's hard to pick any favorite segments. We had uh, Common, the rapper, on the show. He's got a, a music group called August Green, and he freestyled on the show, just kind of like freestyle rapped live on the air, and that was kind of mind-blowing. We've done any number of shows where we just kind of open the phones, you know, after the shooting in Las Vegas, that mass, mass shooting, to just kind of check in with the nation and be like, how are you? You know, are, are you okay? And we just let people pour their hearts out. Those shows are incredible. I think the best shows that we do are the ones where we create moments and where we create meaning. The show is 1A weekday mornings at 10, starting today on CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.